Our Father, we thank you for the Spirit of God who dwells within our hearts. And Father, we are, we are drawn to the words in Jeremiah 33.3, where we read, Call unto me, and I will answer you, and I will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. Lord, we call upon you this morning that you will be our teacher, that your word will speak to us corporately and individually. And Father, you will cause that we will truly be one in fellowship here with you this morning. Bless each life. Father, you know the needs of the different individuals, and we trust you to meet these needs. And Father, we ask today that your Holy Spirit will bless as the word is preached in the service, as the uh, lessons are taught in the various classes here this morning on this property. We pray that you will be glorified. This is our desire, and that we will be responsive to you as our Lord and our King, our Master and our Savior. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. If you'll turn to the 24th chapter of Joshua. Joshua chapter 24. Let's read beginning verse 14. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river in Egypt and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, and of course the river is Euphrates, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. But as for me and for my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people answered and said, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us through all the way in which we went among all the peoples through whom, through whose midst we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us all the peoples, even the Amorites who lived in the land. We also will serve the Lord for he is our God. Then Joshua said to the people, you will not be able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgression or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves, that you have chosen for yourselves the Lord to serve him. And they said... We are witnesses. Now therefore put away the foreign gods which are in your midst and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, We will serve the Lord our God and we will obey his voice. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took the large, a large stone and set it up there under the oak which was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said, to all the people, behold, this stone shall be for a witness against us, for it shall, for it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us. Thus it shall be for a witness against you, lest you deny your God. Then Joshua dismissed the people, each to his inheritance. In reading that passage this morning, there's a verse that's rather startling 
and if read perfunctorily, might draw us to the conclusion that Joshua has gone off the deep end here because he says in verse 19, you will not be able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God, he is a jealous God, and he will not forgive your transgression or your sin. Now, there are a lot of people who like to just grab a single verse out of scripture and use it, twist it, to say what they want to say without studying it within context of the passage that surrounds it. But as we look at this passage and we look at this verse and the verses that surround it, we realize he is not making a categorical statement here that the people couldn't serve God and that God wouldn't forgive their sin. He's challenging them in the seriousness of their commitment, the confession of their faith, what they had just made and the statement that they would obey because they, when Joshua said, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. And the people basically said, we will do the same. And he's saying, will you truly do that? Is that really your commitment? He was making it crystal clear that serving the Lord is serious business. God is not to be trifled with. C.S. Lewis reiterates in his uh, Chronicles of Narnia that Aslan is not a tame lion. We often, in the, especially in the evangelical community, have tamed Christ. We've made him a baby. We, we've made him a good friend. We've made him someone who would do us no harm. And we don't realize he's not a tame lion. He's the God of the universe. He is perfect and holy and just. We dare not trifle with him. And the trifling is, of course, to declare that we are serving him and then not. To declare that we are obeying him and then not. They were going to have to burn their idols that they had acquired along the way. And they were going to have to serve God unswervingly. They, they set their course and they follow. God is the one we're going to serve and we're not going to be drawn to the right. We're not going to be drawn to the left after Molech or Baal or any of the other gods. Of course, in our society, it isn't Molech, some awful, ugly god. It's, it's the god of uh, lust. It's the god of uh, money. It's whatever other gods that today draw our society away from the truth. We could not serve God in a half-hearted way because he is holy and he is just. Jesus said in Luke 16, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And yet how many people try to do that? They try to proclaim, yes, we're following God, but in reality, they're following something else. And it's displayed in their lives. You can see it clearly. Do they serve the Lord? Is their commitment to him so that they are there in a body of other believers, fellowshipping, worshiping, praying, and ministering to one another? No, there, there are some people who claim, well, you know, I can be a Christian and not ever go to church. Well, I would say that, I would not say that's impossible, but I'd say that's denying what the scripture tells us that we are to do. We are part of a fellowship. We are part of the body of Christ. And we can't function as a single cell. You take a single cell out of your body and just put it over here and see how long it lasts. It doesn't last very long. It needs to be within the whole body. And that's how we survive as believers. And that's how Israel was to survive. Joshua's statement in verse 19 about God not forgiving their sin was 
directly related to the condition described in verse 20 of their forsaking the Lord. Because in verse 20 we read, If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then He will turn and do you harm and consume you after He has done you good. There are many who feel that, that, that God would do nothing but good. And God is good. He can't do anything that isn't good, but what we define as good is not necessarily what God defines as good. It's like many people would say, using Israel to wipe out all those Canaanites and kill thousands of men, women, and children, how can that be good? Well, it's because we have distorted the word. Well, the doctor shouldn't go in there and cut out that cancer because those cancer cells want to live too. So we can't harm those cancer cells. But if you don't, they kill the body. Same way with the Canaanites. If they were allowed to survive, they would have killed the whole body of Israel. And therefore, they had to be cut out. If they did forsake the Lord and turn to other gods, then there would be no forgiveness for their apostasy. This is known in Scripture as a high-handed sin. Let me turn to Numbers chapter 15. Numbers chapter 15, verses 30 and 31. Numbers 15, 30. But the person who does anything defiantly, whether he is a native or an alien, meaning a true Israelite or someone who is living within the nation of Israel, that one is blaspheming the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people, because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt shall be upon him. Sometimes we think blaspheming the Lord is just using God's name in vain. It's far more than that. It's to declare that I am a believer and then to live as if that were not true. That's to blaspheme the name of God. Because the world is looking at you or me and they're saying, oh, this is a Christian. Uh, and that's how a Christian lives. Aha, uh -huh. Christian lies, a Christian cheats, a Christian steals. Aha, uh -huh. well, you know, how's that any different from the world? That's blaspheming the name of the Holy God. Because we are mirrors in the world of the truth of God. And therefore, that mirror needs to be burnished and polished. And that means we have to set aside the gods of this world and the sins that are so commonly accepted in our society from the very top down. Define is, you know, kind of attitude, which, I mean, is totally flagrantly violating the truth of who God is. So to, to understand the truth of God, which Israel did, because it had been proclaimed to them and demonstrated to them, and then to flagrantly uh, reject it as a lie, was to blaspheme the Spirit of God. That is immensely dangerous. You know this passage probably, Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verse 31. These are, of course, Jesus' words, and he says, Therefore, if... Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. And whoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. As I said, Aslan is not a tame lion. God is a holy God. And that's what he's, Joshua is saying to Israel. God is a holy God. 
And for you to, in, in the enthusiasm of this hour, to say, yeah, we're going to be like Joshua, and we're going to follow him, and we're going to give our hearts wholly to the Lord, and then next week to start turning off and following after other gods, you have just blasphemed the God of Israel, the Spirit of the living God, and that sin will not be forgiven you. It makes it clear here in Joshua that the disaster that would befall them if they walked in such a path would be as great in its disaster as their victory was over the Canaanites. As, as glorious and, and, and immense as their victory was over the Canaanites, so would their disaster be if they did not follow the God of Israel after proclaiming that they would believe in Him and walk in His way and swearing before Him that they would do so. In response to Joshua's solemn warning here, the people reaffirmed their commitment to the Lord. Yes, we will follow him. And hearing their reaffirmation, Joshua said, then swear by your own lives that you will carry through on your professed commitment. We read that in verse 22. And Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen for yourselves the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. They were to confirm, or they, they were, yes, to confirm their oath by action now. It's easy to say what you'll do, but let's see the proof of it. Let's see you walk in the way you've proclaimed. And so what they had to do was to put away all the idols, all the images, all the aspects of worship of other gods, and to burn and destroy those, and to turn away from them completely and wholeheartedly. As I mentioned to you before, although it has been proclaimed in this town by a man who calls himself a Protestant minister that you can serve multiple gods and it's okay, that is not biblical and it cannot happen. We either serve God or we don't serve God, period. And if we serve God, we claim we're serving God and we're also leaving our, you know, leaving our options open so that we can also, just in case Buddhism is okay, let's, let's bring a little Buddhism in here and let's bring a little Islam in here and, you know, let's do a little of this and a little bit of that. that. That is heinous falsehood, absolutely diametrically opposed to the clear teaching of the only book that is historically supported as true of all the quoted scriptures of various religions. If you study the history of religion, you discover that there is no book that even comes anywhere near the Bible. Oh, the Vedas of the Hindus, you read through those and they are absolute nonsense. And they don't have any historical background to them anyway. And, and the same way with the Quran. The Quran is, 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 is put together in such a way that it's, it's a lot of mumbo jumbo. And it even takes passages of scripture and sticks them in there. Because Muhammad, of course, was aware of Christianity. And he was aware of Judaism. And so he just kind of put an eclectic thing together here. That's why he has a devil, you know, and a god. Similarly to Christianity. Perversion of the truth. God will not tolerate it. They were to remove all vestiges of paganism, whether outward or inward. And during the three years or so, since the conquest of, of Israel was completed, uh, paganism apparently was beginning to seep in around the edges again. Canaan had settled in, peace had come. I mean, Israel had set, settled into Canaan, peace had come. And remember, living within them were little pockets of Canaanites who hadn't been destroyed. Well, were those Canaanites all commi uh, 
converted to Judaism? Well, maybe, maybe not, probably not. So some of them were probably still practicing their idol worship and it was beginning, beginning to seep out into the nearby Jewish communities or Hebrew communities. And, and then, of course, on their borders were up to the north, the horrible Phoenicians who practiced a religion that is totally vile. And certainly that was seeping over the border and, and then Egyptian religion, you know, and, and all of this was, was seeping in. And so Joshua is saying, you must cut it off and destroy it and eliminate it. And the vassal Canaanites living in your midst, such as the Gibeonites and others, they cannot practice their paganism either. In the midst of Israel, it must be stopped. So Joshua wrote the covenant down that they had made that day. This is a covenant. He said, do you before the Lord attest that you will serve him? We do. That's a covenant. It's like the marriage vow. It's a covenant before God. Here is a covenant. So what did, God, what did Joshua do? He wrote it down in the book of the law of God. What is that book? It's the book of Joshua that we have because that's where he wrote it. That's where we read it. In addition, what we're told in this passage is that Joshua set up a large pillar. Now, remember, they're big on putting up piles of stones and other stones and things, stones of remembrance, if you will. And as so he puts up this big pillar and he says, this stone has heard your promise. Now, obviously, that's a, you know, that's a metaphorical statement. The stone doesn't isn't a living thing, but it witnesses to the promise you've made this day. So whenever you see this stone, it is to remind you of the covenant you made this day with the Lord to serve him alone. God, God is big in that, isn't he? Uh, establishing reminders along the way. This scripture says that in this sanctuary, this happens. Well, they're at Shechem and the tabernacle is at Shiloh. So what does he mean here referring to this area as a sanctuary? And I think the reason is, as we have mentioned here before, this is where Abraham built his first altar to the Lord at Shechem. This is where Jacob built his altar to the Lord at Shechem. And this is where Joshua himself offered burnt offerings and put up the stones with the law of God written on them at Shechem. So it had become, in effect, a sanctuary to the Lord. And there they made this promise to serve God. Well, in leading Israel into a renewal of covenant between themselves and God, Joshua completed his ministry. He was 110. He was tired. And he had done what he had been called to do by God. And even though Joshua wouldn't know these words because Paul was many years in the future yet, I, I think he would have echoed the sentiment that we read as Paul approached the end of his ministry in Second uh, Timothy chapter 4. We read these words, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Those are wonderful words. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Does that mean that Paul was a perfect man? He never sinned or did anything wrong? Of course it doesn't mean that. None of us is that way. But it means he, he, he set his mind to follow the Lord and whenever he was tempted to move off in a different direction, God pulled him back and he continued walking in the right direction, serving the Lord. In the future, Paul says in verse 8, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do we all love the presence of God? 
God's right here this morning. Scripture says that where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst, and I trust we're here in his name, and he's here. He's here to talk to each of us where we are at. And that's the way it was for Joshua that day. God was powerfully present with Joshua, and he was inspiring him to give this direction to his people and to proclaim these words. This is truth. This is the character, the nature of God. And as we read about it, it helps us, I think, to understand who God is. And we really need to do that, as I've indicated earlier, because we live in a society that is so laid back and, oh, anything and everything is okay, you know. It's like if you get Citizen Magazine, they had a little uh, cartoon in there that they got from somewhere else, of course, but the cartoon shows a desk in a principal's office and, and on the walls a little sign saying something like, you know, you can't pray unless there's a shooting here or something like that, you know, or the Ten Commandments aren't to be listened to unless there's somebody being shot here, you know, or something like that. I mean, talk about stupidity. We live in a stupid world, surrounded by people who think they're smart. Yeah, you know, that's the truth. It's like listening to these people who, who write these columns in the paper and they think they're so wise and they don't have a clue what they're talking about. So Joshua sent these people home with the shouts of allegiance to God echoing in their ears and the vision of this pillar, which was a witness to their declaration still in their minds. And I think they went home with great joy. We are going to serve the Lord and we are going to be his people. Let's read on here in... Uh, by the way, that we, we need to be reminded, I think, that there is immense joy in serving God. No matter what the physical difficulties are that we face along the way, what trials and tribulation we come to, there is immense joy in serving God. Not only because we know that one day we will also pass on, as Paul and, and Joshua did, into that wonderful place that God has provided where reality becomes full. You know, you and I are, are, in, are, are like a, a, a vapor. You know, in Scripture. And you ever feel like that when you wake up in the morning? I feel like a vapor today, you know. <laughs> I'm sure I've really got a handle on what this day is going to... And we don't. But when we pass over into the land that the Lord has provided for those that are His, we will experience life as we never could have experienced it here because our senses will be so much more intensified. I, I'm speculating here, but I think this is true. I think that the colors will be like we've never experienced in this life. And the sounds and, and the smells and all of it. You know, some people think we're going to be walking on streets of gold and it's all going to be sterile. Don't believe a word of it. You know, it talks about streets of gold, but there's no sterility because God is the author of immense variety. I mean, he's, well, there's, there's no way to fathom him. He's absolutely infinite. And just think, what it, can you imagine? You can walk through all eternity, however long that is, which is, of course, no without end, and always be learning more about God. There never will be an end to it. Aristotle, who lived 300 or so years before Christ, tried to know everything there was to know about everything, which, of course, today we think that's hilarious. <laughs> you know, nobody knows everything there is to know even about some teeny little thing. That's why people write Ph.D. dissertations on the right front joint of Drusophila melanogaster, you know. <laughs> And, and, you know, the whole idea of knowing everything about everything is so absurd. And, and to know that God is infinite, and that's what heaven will be like, knowing him whom to know is life eternal. Let's read on the last verses of the chapter. Verse 29 of, jo of uh, Joshua 24. 
And it came about after these things that Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in Timnasarah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, on the north of Mount Gash. And Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua and had known all of the deeds that the Lord which he had done for Israel. Now they buried the bones of Joseph, which the sons of Israel brought up from Egypt at Shechem, in the piece of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of money or silver. And they became the inheritance of Joseph, Joseph's sons. And notice the last verse, And Eliezer, the son of Aaron, died. And they buried him at Gibeah of Phinehas, his son, which was given him in the hill country of Ephraim. Joshua had done everything that he could do to prepare his people for the future. He wasn't going to be there to shepherd them anymore. Moses had gone. Joshua is gone. And now Israel must walk on without these two giants who had led them. Joshua had served God well. He was far from perfect, but his attitude was to do the will of God. He died at 110 years of age. Most of us, I don't think, hope to achieve 110. Most of us probably wouldn't even want to live to be 110 if we could. But in those 110 years, he had never known the kind of what we call peace and security that comes in retirement. He never retired through all 110 years. We feel that, and I'm speaking generically, <clears throat> we in America feel that we have worked hard to achieve retirement and we owe it to ourselves. But I, I trust none of us ever retires from the work of God. We may retire from a, quote, job. That's, you know, that's expected and, and probably a good thing because everybody I've ever talked to who's retired said they don't know how they ever figured got any time to work before because they're more busy now than when, when they were working. But that's true if you're in the service of the Lord. I, I know on the other hand, a lot of people who retire who don't know the Lord at all have nothing to do with it. They don't know what to do with themselves and they end up dying of a heart attack within a year because they're just, you know, what to do with their, themselves. Well, when you're in the body of Christ and you're in a, a living church, that's not going to be a problem because there is plenty to do in his service. The first 60 years of Joshua's life were spent as a slave. The next 40 years were spent in the wilderness, serving under Moses. And then he spent seven years uh, guiding Israel through the conquest of Canaan. And then the last three years or so, he was living at Timnath Sarah. What was he doing there? Well, I, I think he was rebuilding the city and trying to get things in shape for his family. But, you know, I, I, I can hardly imagine that he didn't have some role in governing the people still. And, and probably what he was doing was trying to prepare the people for a form of government that you and I don't know, but a form of government that was biblical for Israel. And that was a theocracy where God ruled and, and the people served under God. And God's anointed and appointed leaders served over them. They weren't going to be headless. They were going to have a head. They were going to be a leader. And as we move on to the next book, we discover those leaders were called judges. And the word judge has to be seen in a broader sense than we apply it today. Today, we think of a judge as somebody sits on a bench and says, you're, you know, you're in prison for 20 years. <clears throat> what we're talking about when we move to judges, of course, is a person with a much larger role, 
a, low, a role, a, a charismatic role of leadership uh, for his people, called up to do the job that God has called him to do at that particular moment. Joshua didn't have much time to spend enjoying his home at Timnath Sarah, you know, tending a little garden and petting his little cats and whatever else. Be, and and it, I don't think it mattered to him because, you see, he had a greater reward, a far better inheritance. And that, of course, was the incorruptible inheritance of beauty and tranquility that far transcends anything we can even imagine on this planet. And even though he didn't have the book of Revelation to describe, you know, the city coming down out of heaven and, and the streets of gold and, and the walls of various uh, beautiful stones, he knew that passing into God's presence would be a glorious thing. He was buried at his homestead on the north side of a mountain called Gash, which is thought to have been located about 20 miles southwest of Shechem. With the passing of Joshua, we're told that Israel served the Lord during the time of the elders that had known the miracles of God. The elders that had seen what God did in the wilderness, the elders that saw what happened in, in the land of Canaan. The fulfillment of a promise made nearly 400 years before is recorded in verse 32 where we read that they buried Joseph, the bones of Joseph, with the sons which the sons of Israel had brought up out of Egypt at Shechem. Why did he do that? And why did they have his bones? What are you doing with Joseph's bones? Well, let me just turn back to uh, Genesis chapter 50 here for a moment. In Genesis chapter 50, we read in verse 24, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. And, and that's what they're doing. They're fulfilling the promise that had been made to Joseph to carry his bones up out of Egypt. He didn't want his bones. Not that he's there. This is not some kind of uh, uh, a magical thing that if his bones aren't there, you know, he doesn't... Were there no ghosts and goblins and spirits moving around over the face? I mean, that's what the Egyptians believed. You know, they, they believed that you had to be sure you did the right things with the Pharaoh so that his, when his spirit went out from the pyramid, he could get back to the right pyramid, to the right place. You know, I'd be really sad to get back to the wrong place. You know? I mean, this is a common misconception that is from the pit of hell that people's spirits still move around over the surface of the earth, you know, and, and it's a demonic ruse to, to blind men, you know, the whole idea of reincarnation, of spirits moving around, this is all from the pit of hell to confuse people so they won't believe the truth. The truth is that it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. The soul goes instantly in the presence of God. It doesn't wander around anywhere on this planet. So Joseph's bones are not being brought back so that Joseph can finally say, oh boy, I'm glad to be back in Canaan after all these years of being buried in Egypt. No. It's so that Israel will know that the bones of their great ancestor Joseph are here. Because Abraham's bones and Isaac's bones and Jacob's bones and their wives' bones were there in the land. They were at Machpelah, at Hebron. And so here at Hebron, here at Shechem, you have the bones of the great men and women of God. And, and it created a, a sense of, of ownership, of commitment, of doing what they did as we read in Hebrews chapter 11. 
Why Shechem? Why didn't they bury him at Hebron? Why did they bury him at Shechem? Well, if we go back, I'll just turn back to it. If in the 33rd chapter of Genesis, we read it, read it, verse 18. Now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Paden Aram and camped before the city. And he bought the piece of land where he had pitched his tent from the hand of the sons of, she of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. And he erected there an altar and called it El Elohe Israel, God, the God of Israel. And so they buried Joseph in that piece of land that was bought by his father, Jacob. First place that Jacob bought in the land. And that was where Joseph was buried. The final verse of this chapter and of the book of Joshua records the death of another member of the old guard, the high priest Eliezer. He was buried in his own son's possession at Gibeah, which is located just north of Jerusalem. Undoubtedly, one of the primary reasons why, why Israel continued to follow the Lord after the death of Joshua, during the lives of the elders, one of the primary spark plugs that kept him on track was this son of Eliezer, because this son of Eliezer became the next high priest, and his name was Phineas. And if you remember, we've emphasized the role of Phineas several times through the course of this study. Phineas was a great man of God. He was a firebrand who would not tolerate deviation from the truth. And he was willing to do the hard thing, even if it meant violent things, in order to keep the people on target. And Phineas is, is, a, is a great man uh, in the history of Israel. And we have to thank God for the Phineases of Israel and for the Phineases of the church. The church has 2,000 years of history nearly, and God has raised up, quote, Phineases here and there to keep the church on the straight and narrow because the temptation is to go off in the ways of the world and to follow the traditions of men rather than the traditions of God. And that's what's happened to much of the church. And yet always God has kept the 7,000, as it were, who have not bowed the knee to Baal, led by a Phineas. And that brought us here today to this place where you and I are in a church where the living God is served and believed and His Word is honored. And we're here because of it. Well, I don't know how, why all of you are here, but in, in a generic way, we're here because of a firebrand called A.B. Simpson, who was a kind of a Phineas, if you will. And there have been hundreds of these down through the history of the church. And God has used them to keep the church here and alive and active and well, in spite of all the uh, cults and isms and asms and spasms that have developed through the centuries to misguide the church. Well, next week, I'm going to do one of two things. I'm either going to, uh, that, that is my desire, Lord willing, to begin the book of Judges, if not next week, the week after, or to kind of do a recapitulation uh, to get us up to speed so that uh, when we go into the book of Judges, we'll have a real good idea of what that book's really about. Yes, sir. How many years of Joseph death and Joshua's death? Um, exactly, we don't know, but it would be roughly 500 years, about half a millennium. And so when you think about that and you start putting it in, in the context of what we know, that'd be like going back to Christopher Columbus, you know, as far as we're concerned.
Of course, we think that to be, be oh, ancient history, you know. <laughs>